Saratoga Lights presents The Pulpit. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Pulpit. I am the troubadour Andrew Reynolds, once now live, now before. The barmaid Sarah always kept a shotgun behind the bar. The only time she'd come close to using it, so far was when some drunk fool peed in a glass and offered it to this young college kid as his special blended whiskey. Unfortunately, the drunk had no idea that the kid he was razzing was actually going to school on a baseball scholarship. And he instantly regretted the joke when the piss glass smashed into the back of his head at upwards of 80 miles per hour. That is to say, he would have instantly regretted it had he not been knocked out cold. A frightful ten minutes had passed, wherein every patron of the bar made peace with the fact that they most likely witnessed a homicide. But secretly, they were glad the fool was silenced so they could enjoy their drinks without his constant annoyance. The college kid was understandably upset though Sarah did her best to assuage his guilt by reporting that the fool was still breathing. By the time he came to, his hair covered in urine and blood, his memory had all but been erased. The fool had no idea why he was on the floor, what had transpired, or even who he was. Some drunk at the end of the bar yelled, You're Frank Stout! Now get the fuck out! From that day on, Frank, as he came to be known, put down the drink and took up painting. I heard one of his pieces ended up in the Louvre, but that's another story for another day. You ever kill anyone? Over in the corner of the room, with only a shambly table between, Bradford slyly grins at Belinda. <laughs> in response to her question, clearly trying to impress her. What the hell does that mean? Why do you perpetuate this whole air of mystery about you? I just don't know why you're trying to spoil our good time. You're all the same. Bradford, sensing his date's disappointment, relents. Don't have to kill anyone. Just have to scare him enough. But you would. Bradford gives her the exact same grin as before. Sly as ever. <laughs> Shit, dude. You ever hurt anyone? Aside from the proverbial broken heart that you leave every man with the next morning. Yeah. Her genuine smile quickly becomes false, as if it's frozen in an attempt to hide some pain from long ago. Yeah. My dad killed a cop once. Stole a little money. You mentioned the name Molina anywhere in East Texas, and they know who you're talking about. But he was a real bastard. Beat up my mom and shoved me in the piss-filled toilet if I ever got in the way. <laughs> you're high. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dylan didn't know about narcotics, spirits, or any other vice in the traditional sense. Dylan was five. The only vice that Dylan imbibed was a bag of potato chips and a can of warm soda after school every day, much to the chagrin of his mother. Tonight, however, Dylan had talked his way past the barmaid 
and received more than a couple raised eyebrows from the other patrons to make his way to a table where a game of cards was currently going on. He watched as the adults would tap the felt, toss cards to and fro, and alternatively push and pull chips from a pot in the middle of the table. Once a seat was finally vacated by a man who threw his hand down in disgust, Dylan promptly filled it. And though the remaining players did not know exactly what to make of the young child joining the table, any objections were mitigated when Dylan produced a $20 bill from his pocket. Now, six hands in, Dylan was up a couple hundred dollars, knocking other players out with relative ease and leaving only Miss Christensen sitting across the table, eyeing him skeptically and smoking a Markham. Dylan pushes all in and Miss Christensen calls, laying her straight flush on the felt. The group of spectators collectively hold their breath as Dylan, himself, considers his hand before placing the cards down on the table. A royal flush. The spectators groan, Miss Christensen curses, and Dylan offers a courteous nod to the table before making his way to the bar with his winnings. Can I get you anything? Coke. Warm. Where's Joe Grace? Poor Joe Grace, get up here! An angelic figure moves through the crowd and steps up on the slightly raised stage. This is my friend Joe. Joe, say hi. Hi, y'all. You're in for a real treat, friends. It is not every day poor Joe Grace visits us on our earthly plane. You're not an outlaw anymore. No, ma'am. That warrant has been rescinded. I am reformed. Oh, well, good. Because I don't want to be caught for aiding and abetting. <laughs> How about you aid in a bet on this here fiddle? I'd love to. Order up! Vic was the best cook this side of 35, as Sarah would often brag to the patrons of the pulpit. While the grit and grime of the neon-soaked bar might lead some to believe otherwise, Anyone who dined on his pork short ribs would attest to their superiority, though not to be so effusive as to betray Central Texas's best-kept secret. This particular night, however, Vic was faced with having to make the majority of his plates dry, absent of his dish's signature sauce. Having dutifully searched through every crook and cabinet in the small white kitchen and not found a replacement, Vic looks at the empty and apparently the last bottle of outlaw barbecue sauce they had. Its label, offensive enough to even the most liberal-minded folks, featured a black man stepping and fetching, grinning ear to ear. Sarah's face appears at the narrow pass-through as she picks up the order. You know it's bullshit, right? What? Rufus Outlaw? He died from dysentery. Who's Rufus Outlaw? The guy on the bottle. Vic holds the empty bottle up and points to the offensive caricature. What's bullshit about it? Dude had a little plot of land down near the border. He drilled his well right next to his wastewater and poisoned himself out of ignorance. But everyone makes him out to be this John Henry Appleseed folk hero. It's bullshit. I mean, if I went defecating everywhere, you'd think they'd put me on a stance? 
Sarah offers an apologetic look as she leaves Vic trapped in his station, depositing the plate in front of some drunk at the end of the bar before answering the phone. Pulpit. Sarah waits, anticipating a voice on the other end that never materializes. Hello? Sarah presses a palm against her free ear, hoping to muffle the din of the bar and better hear the caller, but still, she is unable to make out any discernible voice on the phone. Can I get a uh, vodka soda? Sarah looks up and sees Bradford leaning on the bar, his drawl still trying to catch up to the rest of his mouth. She hangs up the phone and pours his drink. Want to start a tab? You can uh, put it on my lady friends right over there. Bradford nods over to Belinda, still sitting at their table, who waves in acknowledgement. Sarah adds it to the tab and picks up the empty bottle from this decrepit-looking cowboy on the stool next to Bradford. Want another, Charlie? I'm sopped up. Well, you sit there until you are unsopped. Yes, ma'am. The room is bathed in darkness and trepidatious silence as everyone looks around at one another, unsure of what just happened. Sorry, y'all. I'll check on the generator. No one go tripping. Sarah disappears to some back room. Bradford nudges the cowboy, waking him from his stupor and bringing him to life for perhaps the last time, based on the glazed look in his eyes. Well, she's a looker, huh, old-timer? Sarah, she's cursed. The hell you say? Whole family's cursed. Her niece got run over by a car in some freak accident. A girl's dad broke his neck and then his sister started rambling about a demon living under the house. Scared folks. The lights come back on and everybody cheers. All right. Once we were darkness, but now we are light. This one's for all of us. Be good to each other. Sarah re-enters the bar and takes a mocking bow, raising a glass to everyone who cheers at her arrival and the resumption of their good time. Belinda gets up from her table and taps Bradford on the shoulder. I'm gonna go pee. All right, baby. Belinda disappears around the corner. What happened to the uh, sister? Tried stabbing her eyes out with a shard of glass. Nicked one pretty good. I guess she got tired of looking at that devil. The women's restroom is occupied, much to the annoyance of Belinda's bladder. After watching a couple of sorry-looking sots go in and out of the gentleman's restroom with relative quickness, she decides to seek relief in the same manner. The room boasts a single toilet and urinal along the same wall with nary six inches between the fixtures, opposite the small sink and the mirror. Belinda hovers above the toilet to relieve herself, holding her breath for as long as possible. However, a burning stench begins to grow in her nostrils that makes it a more torturous exercise with each passing second. As her bladder empties in spurts and starts, the sound of a baby crying slowly creeps into Belinda's ears. Who would bring a baby to a bar is all she could think. However, as the wailing goes on, Belinda realizes the source is not from some distant toddler out in the main room, but rather the sound is emanating from somewhere within the room she currently occupies. 
Being covered floor to ceiling with discolored subway tiles, it took Belinda a second or two to identify the source of the faint crying as it was bouncing from wall to wall. A small metal grate covering the drain in the floor. She pulls up her drawers and goes to investigate, standing over the metal grate and peering down into the darkness, beyond where the gasping pangs were growing ever louder. It's okay, baby. Frantically, Belinda searches the room for some tool or implement to open the drain, forcefully or otherwise, but to no avail. She reaches down, determined to rip the grate off with her bare hands to save the abandoned child. But as the cold steel touches her skin, a bolt of electricity flashes through the room with a blinding, searing heat. The restroom goes dark and silent, save for the intermittent drip of the faucet. Outside, the rest of the bar loses power once more as evidenced by the groans of its patrons. But inside, where Belinda once stood, the space is empty. She's gone, vanished just as quickly as the lightning bolt itself. The lights flicker once more in return, resulting in further cheers from the bar. As the music resumes, another patron stumbles into the restroom to relieve himself. This was in Texas. The Pulpit is written and directed by Randall LaRue. Audio recording and engineering by Matthew David Rudd. Music by Randy Reynolds. This episode featured the voice talents of Matt Fitzgerald, Jennifer McGraw, Danny Blanchard, Billy Gardner, Caitlin Muncy, Brian Villalobos, Valerie Rose Lohman, Jordan Merritt, and Matthew David Rudd. Until next time.